You know that feeling after you finish a book that's just amazing and then you run out and you have to tell everyone that they have to read this book? Well, it happened to us on the W5H podcast this month. Luki Danucargento and I read Educated by Tara Westover, which is just an unbelievable book. Check it out in bookstores and check out our podcast discussion on the W5H podcast available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. But I certainly wouldn't want people to have this false idea of the medical system that, yeah, there's two people. There's women working part-time. And then there's these male doctors who are still working like the 60s, working like you know, 24 hours a day. It's like, no, 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 no. The male doctors are also not working as much. Welcome to the Medical Dads Podcast, a parenting podcast by two dads who happen to be medical doctors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Harmon, a pediatric emergency room physician and father of four from Ottawa, Ontario. I want to be in the podcast. Daddy, do you know what you're doing? Can I play a game on your computer? Daddy, where's mommy? And I'm your other co-host, Dr. David Shu, a family doctor from Toronto, Ontario. Welcome aboard. Right, Dr. Harmon, welcome back to the Medical Dads. Back for another week. Are, uh, are you alone right now? I am alone. This, today is a great, I mean, I love my family, but it is a great day because I have the whole day to myself. The kids are at school, my wife is at work, and I have this grand plan that I'm going to get so much done today. And this is the first thing on my list, so I'm sure dads and moms out there, they know this feeling. You finally got that day. I've been waiting like two months <laughs> for this day where I don't have anything specific planned that's going to make me go to the office for a few hours. Well, here's something else that a lot of families listening can probably relate to. So you've got this day and you've, you've planned it out. Okay, this is all the work that I'm going to get done today. And then you get a message from the school that for one reason or another, your kid's <laughs> class is canceled and now your kid is at home with you. Like my son is with me right now. <laughs> so I have not had that happen to me at all during the pandemic thus far, knock on wood. But what, what's the deal with this? Like suddenly schools just shut down when they don't have enough hands on deck? Well, I would imagine any parent, if you're doing this long enough, is going to have it where you thought your kid was going to school and they get sick and they're home with you or there's a snow day and they get home with you or the buses are canceled <laughs> and they're home with you. But this, what I'm experiencing right now, is seems to be a little different than what I've ever had to deal with before with the other kids, which is that the school is simply saying we do not have a supply teacher available uh, to handle the number of kids that we have, and so your child's class is canceled. And, and then that's it. You, you, your <laughs> child is home with you. And this is an email that we got from the school at about 8.40 last night. I thought there was this giant repository of supply teachers in the supply chain of teachers. Well, what, what happened to these people? I know when my wife was trying to break into teaching, or at least break into teaching in Ottawa, she mm -hmm. had to get on the supply teacher list, which was already a big privilege. And she was right. jumping at the chance to fill in when supply work became available because that was your inroad to potentially getting a job at that school. But right. it seems that the issue they have right now is there are so many teachers off on any given day because of COVID symptoms that mean they can't come to school. Uh, something happened with their own kids why they can't go to, why their kid can't go to school, so now the teacher has to stay home with them. Right. Or, I don't know just burnouts and maybe just teachers saying, forget it, I, I can't come to work today. Or just a bunch of teachers left their job and now 
there's just not empty spots, but there are not enough supply teachers to, to fill in all the, all the gaps. So in my son's particular I, case today, it's not even that his teacher is missing. It's that a bunch of other teachers are missing for other classes, but the, they don't want to cancel classes for the kids in grade one and two, so they cancel ca- classes for the kids in grades six, seven, and eight, and then have those teachers go and watch <laughs> the younger kids. That's even more bizarre. You've, he, you think that he's already won the luck of the draw. Like his teacher <laughs> is the one that's is healthy, yeah. but then he still ends up losing because young people's education is more important than adolescent education or something. It's true. You know, he, but he would have already run the gauntlet of being exposed <laughs> to every viral illness you can be exposed to in kindergarten, grade one, where they're <laughs> ru- ru- rubbing their snotty hands all over each other all the time. Uh, that's when the teachers are supposed to be getting sick, not, not grade six. That's when you think, okay, yeah, now we're all good. Teachers are healthy. Kids are healthy. But I think the issue is for the school. You call parents and say, look, your four-year-old or your three-year-old is home today. Uh, then the parents are really scrambling because those kids require a lot of attention throughout the day. Right. Uh, but your son is old enough to sit at home by himself with an iPad is essentially what the school board is telling you. <laughs> they might as well just say, today has been designated a Nintendo Switch day. For your child, they may stay home and play out there at Nintendo Switch. Oh, ridiculous. Now, it sounds like you're saying that this is because of the f- massive flu season that we've had and the aftershocks of COVID, right? Like, that's why this is happening. I think it's probably twofold. So, yes, there's a, a lot more viral illness going around than there was uh, maybe previously. Uh, well, I shouldn't say previously. Uh, over the over two years of COVID, there has been a real decrease in the circulation of our illnesses, and mm-hmm. now we've had a big uh, uptake of that. Although I gotta say, mm-hmm. at this particular current moment in time, I mean, people listening to the podcast will know that over some of the previous months, we talked about how there was a big viral surge. But what I'm seeing in my hospital right now today is not that there is an overwhelming amount of viral illness compared to mm-hmm. you know March of 2019. Right. right. It settled down a little bit. In yeah, the last it settled down a little bit. But the restrictions that we put on are different. So before, your kid has a runny nose that you send them off to school. Your kid has a cough, you send them off to school. But now, people aren't having any of that. Right? If the teacher feels remotely unwell, it's, okay, I can't go in. You know, I, I've decreased energy today. I better take a COVID test. Oh, it's positive. I'm, I, I can't go to school, regardless <laughs> of how contagious you are or, or, or not. That, that's different. And I don't know when that's going to change. It seems like it's kind of arbitrary how people choose to follow the COVID restrictions at this point. Because some of the rules have things like, well, you're sick, but if you have 24 hours of symptom improvement and a negative COVID test, you're good to go, yeah. right? Which, which 24 hours of symptom improvement is a really subjective thing. Like you, you come down with a bit of a scratchy throat, you're 24 hours in an illness, it's not a lot worse you might be able to just say, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit better, right? Yeah. And you, we know that these COVID tests are super unreliable, yeah. right? Especially in these mild symptom cases. Maybe the COVID test doesn't appear positive until three days in, yeah. but you've already gone back to school. So it, I feel like there is some wiggle room for enterprising parents who need to get their kids to school at all costs. I'd say the way people follow the COVID rules is arbitrary in that they've arbitrarily decided if it works to my advantage, I will follow the rule. If it works to my disadvantage, then I will not. Uh, well, here's one. Here's here's a similar-ish story that I encountered at the office this week. Okay. One of the other doctors in our office asked me, is it okay if I bring my kid to, to work 
this week and i'm like oh sure no problem like we have a lunch area and they're like she's she's got to take the day off because she's sick but i don't really think she's sick i think she's faking it i'm like huh <laughs> if she's faking it why don't you make them go to school she's like they're too smart for that they just say that they have this symptom and then the school is going to be like okay you got to take them home right yeah so she brings the kid to the to the clinic and i see the kid hanging out and kid looks pretty well you know i think the doctor's diagnosis is correct yeah and the kid's got like a free day so sit in the back chilling out we have like a lot of candies yeah. in the lunchroom that people are welcome to and they have their own ipad so probably like your son just enjoying the day off right and and i, I thought about it and i was like the problem here is that they didn't set the situation up for the kid correctly and people yeah. who've listened to medical dads know that when dr Harmon was a kid and he tried to pull this stunt where he was fake sick at home that his mom put a stop to it right, <laughs> right. there was no tv watching on the sick day he had to stay in bed yeah that's my kids over this last winter a few times have had to come to the office and it is one of the advantages of being self-employed is that when your children have a mild illness you can just stash them in the back room yeah Right. And let me tell you, there's no iPad happening in the back room. Okay, yeah. When they come to the office, the, the most benefit that they can get. And they're they're legitimately sick. Yeah. Right. And we're not babying them so much. We're just giving them a bunch of eight and a half by 11 sheets of white paper out of the printer <laughs> right? and say, here, draw. Right. Yeah. And at the beginning, they're kind of excited. They're like, oh, I got a day to draw. And then dad will pop in in between patients and throw some math questions <laughs> at him because I always lug a bunch of math books to and the office. Math so that's going to come into this. <laughs> that's another advantage of being a family doctor is that I can like disappear in every five minutes in between patients to check on the math progress. And by the end of that day, like by one o'clock, they're like, when are we going home? Like, I want to go home. And, yeah. and usually the kids are like slouched in the chair. They're like super uncomfortable. And in their case, they were actually sick, so it would have helped if they could lie down, but there's no real place to lie down in the office yeah. unless you wanted to put them on an exam table, yeah. which just seems like a really uncomfortable sleeping experience. So yeah. by the by the end, I asked them, like, now, like, this has happened a few times. I'm like, so uh, how sick are you? Are you ready to go back to school? Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm going back to school tomorrow. I, I don't need to come. You want to come to the office? You want to come to the office again? <laughs> right? I'll, I'll just say that I heard the girl at the end of the day this week tell her mom next time i'm sick can i come back to the clinic it's fun here <laughs> i'm like oh boy <laughs> oh boy put those chocolates away <laughs> uh, and if you really want to tie a bow on all that then when they come home from the office then they go to their bedroom and they get, they get in their bed and they're like what no 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 it's like no 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 sick people stay in bed you were sick today you got to stay in bed uh, <laughs> you yes. can come out of bed tomorrow when we go back to the office and you can sit in the corner and do math. So you, that, that, then they're asking to go back to school. We just created a thing. That's the shoe Harmon method. That's it's a combined right. method of keeping your kids honest. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, it's hilarious to hear this story that somebody would, would bring their kid in like multiple <laughs> days in a row to have fun times in the office. But I, so I got to go into work today later and I got to bring my kid with me and <laughs> it's going to be this thing of telling everybody, no, 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 he's not sick. It's not, it's not because he's sick. School's just canceled. <laughs> he's not sick. Oh man. So when you bring him in, he just hangs out in the back of the emergency room. There's like a little area for this, for like the wayward children of physicians. This, this isn't, I'm not bringing him in on a clinical shift. That would be, uh, okay. that, that's, un, that'd be unprecedented. I haven't done that yet. At least not on purpose yet. <laughs> 
but uh, I'm going in for a bunch of meetings and stuff like this. So I could yeah. I could see that if you brought him in for a clinical shift, that would be a really good setup for like a, a like a children's book, you know, like a doctor dumps the kid in the back room and then disappears to go do do some emergency medicine. And next, thing you know, the kids like wandering around the hospital and stumbling onto all these adventures. That actually could be a good project. So it's going in and, and solving medical mysteries. <laughs> that undiagnosed people who, who no one could figure out what's wrong with them. My son comes in. And as lo- as long as the book ends with him coming up to you and be like, next time I'm sick, can I come back to the emergency room? That's got to be the <laughs> final line of the thing. I think the, the book ends with dad being investigated by the Children's Aid Society. <laughs> so anyways, this whole thing is a good segue in back into our topic of the month, which is not the teacher shortage, but the physician shortage in Ontario and Canada. That's right. And we've been rumbling along talking about this big shortage of doctors. And the, the, as, as bad as the teacher shortage is, the doctor shortage seems worse. It's definitely getting more press. And yeah. we've talked about how, that, how, how it's affecting us. We've talked about how it's affecting patients. But today we're going to talk a little bit about how it came to be that the physician shortage is what it is. That's a good... That's a good jumping off point. And maybe to tie it into what we were just saying about the teacher shortage, maybe one of the first things we can talk about is this question of why are there more doctors missing after COVID specifically? Was it, Mm. was it that, was that, did COVID just wipe out a bunch of doctors and now they're gone off the face of the earth or, or, or what happened? Because it's the same thing with teachers and all these other people in the workforce. Uh, After COVID, it seemed like a bunch of people just weren't there who were there before COVID. And everybody wants mm-hmm. to know what, what, what happened. <laughs> so the answer is yes. Some doctors have been wiped out of the workforce because of COVID, unfortunately. Because it but killed them? Not as, like, <laughs> no. Well, yeah, some have died, right? Especially early in COVID, doctors were getting sick and doctors as frontline workers were getting sick. So a, f- a few died. But I don't think the number that died really explains what's happening, at least not in Canada. Like in some other countries, like in China, I think that could be an explanation, but not here. No, no, no. The, yeah, it, it, the, 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 the impact on the physician workforce from physicians specifically dying from COVID is, is negligible. But I think yeah. what did happen is there were a lot of doctors who were sort of due to retire, but you know, they were probably going to hang on a little bit longer, a little bit longer. And in fact, right. one Band-Aid that's been holding the whole doctor shortage thing together for, for years, if not decades, has been doctors who they're planning on retiring and their patients are saying, hey, you can't retire. What do we do without you? And the doctor, ah, oh, hang in a little longer, hang in a little longer. But I think COVID for a lot of doctors was like, all right, uh, I'm, I'm retiring. Or I had to shut down my practice like during the early parts of COVID when nobody could open any kind of business. And that was a sign to me to retire and I'm not coming back. So I think, and I think that happened across the workforce in general. A lot of people in general were, okay, uh, COVID shut me down. I'm just going to retire now. And, they, and, and that, they're gone now. Right. In, in essence, not that different from the kid who decided they're not feeling that great, just not going to go to school today and ends up eating chocolate all day. There are a lot of doctors, they were already comfortable financially. That's the thing, right? So they're not, they're not going to work just to make a few extra bucks. And they would have been happy to play out the string if they had to, right? If there was no pressure on them, they could keep collecting checks for another decade or another five years. Yeah. But now they have to wear a mask. Now they're facing life and death potentially every day. They tend to be in the older age category. And the question at that point is, what's the point? I've already done my service to society. Am I really going to keep grinding away just because the system desperately needs my help? 
it's yeah. a legit answer to say, you know what, I've had enough of this, right? And yeah. that's happening on mass. That's right. This this would have been spread out over a few years. We'd still be in the yeah. same problem that we're in now, but it would have been spread out over a few years. But we're yeah. feeling it more because it all happened all at once after a two year right. period. I I think one issue is that as as physicians and maybe and I'm not going to speak on behalf of all elderly physicians, but kind of feel like when they started to change the rules about retirement age around you know 15, I think it was 15, 20 years ago, and people could work past 65. Suddenly, doctors were like, great, we can keep working, right? It's like one of these new rules changes gets implemented and everyone jumps at it, yeah. but no one really stops to think, like, is this a really good idea or not for themselves, right? right? So suddenly, guys are like, oh, I don't want to retire. I can work till I'm 75. I can work till I'm 80. Yeah. And there's no hard clock on when they have to stop. And so they're all enjoying it. And maybe they're not enjoying it as much as they think they are. Right. Because when the mo when push comes to shove, they're like, you know what? I really don't need this. <laughs> right. And now they all jump ship. Right. So it gets me wondering about what is the actual age that a physician should stop working? I to be honest, I've been watching a lot of elderly physicians over the years, you know, getting to know physicians who are young and old. I don't feel like this is a job that you can do forever. Right. And, and I think sometimes doctors feel like they can do this job forever. Yeah. I feel like it's a huge challenge for a physician to work indefinitely. I, I feel like it's a huge challenge for any of us to work indefinitely at anything. And I kind of feel like we have stages to our lives. Right. We yeah. we're not expected to work when we're a child. And I don't feel like we should be expected to work when we're elderly. There should be some other thing that we're doing with our life at that point. And it's, it's, it's strange to me that people cling to this so much, whether it's for financial reasons or it's because their identity is bound up in it or they have nothing else to do. It's just strange that people are like, oh, I can work past 65. Great. I'll keep going. <laughs> right. I, I, I just can't get over that. My wife and I, I mean, we're younger now, so we're always like, you know, we're not going to be in this game forever. Yeah. There's a hard limit. We want to do other things later. We keep saying that. I don't know. Maybe when we get to 65, we'll be like, if I can just keep doing what I was doing, that's good enough. Right. But I don't know. Well, would it seem reasonable that we would work one year for every year we spent in school? <laughs> I don't know. I try not to think about that part. But but school, you mean like from the time we're in preschool up until when we finish medical school? You mean that 20 plus year journey? Well, that's, that's a lot more than 20 years, man. Like if you think if you start with just kindergarten, let's leave preschool out of this, right? But start in kindergarten, right? Kindergarten's two years, then uh, another eight years of uh, primary school. So now you're already looking it's about at twenty. Uh, what's that? You're at ten. You're at ten. Then you do four yeah. years of high school. Four years, of maybe high school. five if you were from our generation. That's right. Five, so, so that's fifteen, 15 years. Then four years of uh, undergrad takes us to nineteen. Um, yeah. Someone like myself, I did one year of a master's degree. We're in, nor in a master's degree, it could be two years, but say, take one year. So, of okay, 20. Let's say so 20. 20. And then you did medical school. So Optionally, the med school is not an obligation for everyone to go to. But I think we're specifically talking about how long a doctor is going to work for, right? Okay, sure. So, so, so you're, now at you're at 25. Years. Yeah, 25 years. Okay. And then residency was another four years. So now we're at 29. You're, you're getting paid. You're getting paid as a resident. That's actually considered a job at that point. Yeah, you're still in school, though. And if it is a job uh, and you're counting it by your hours, right? You're now you're making <laughs> less than minimum wage, right? So you're trying to stretch this to about 30 if you're a specialist. And I'm saying it's maybe closer to 25 if you're a family doctor. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't even counted in my years of fellowship, right? So now we're talking like 30, 31 years of, of just being a student. 
so then at at the end of all that, you're around 30 years old when you start working, right? Yeah. And you get about 35 years in the workforce. I would take you to 65, which is also yeah. an arbitrary number, but that was the number people used to retire at yeah. before they got rid of eight. They got rid of this limit due to ageism yeah. and now allow people to work forever. So I'm meeting doctors who are working into their 70s, sometimes into their 80s, sometimes into the close to 90. So wow. we had a doctor working in our clinic who was over 90 as a psychotherapist for a while. And, and had he paid off his student debt at that point? <laughs> I don't really know what debts he had incurred to be willing to work <laughs> yeah. that long, but this guy had he, he kids. was a true. What happened to this guy? This guy had kids, and then each one of his kids wanted to go to med school. <laughs> That's why he's stuck <laughs> in this boat. But the crazy thing is that I, I, when I met him, I actually really respected the man in the sense that he was still doing what he loved to do. Like it was actually, yeah. you could tell he loved being a doctor. He loved coming to work every day. He would go out and enjoy going to conferences on the weekend. He was traveling around the world at like age 90 plus yeah. learning, right? Still engaged with medicine. Yeah. Mad respect for that. But I don't think that's the model we should all be following. I don't think there's anything wrong with that idea of you reach a certain age and now you say, you know what, I'm going to keep doing the job that I love, but now I'm doing all the parts that I don't like, or now I'm cutting out the parts that I don't like. So I, I worked mm. with a guy who um, around age 50 or 55, he stopped working in the main side of the emergency department and just worked in the ambulatory zone. Um, so mm. he's not having to deal with um, like the overnight shifts and the, the big resuscitations uh, and the mm. more high risk type of uh, patients from a Safety so he just became a, he became a family doctor at the, for the last bit. Uh, yeah, a walking clinic doctor, one might say. For <laughs> but he was enjoying it, right? He was happy. He just worked like his certain number of shifts a month. Uh, he didn't have any of these other academic responsibilities at the hospital or any of that other stuff that goes with normally working at the academic hospital. Mm. Uh, he just went in, saw patients. He just he just had the icing. You know, he didn't even have to eat the cake. <laughs> Not bad, not bad. That is not really an option for family doctors. We'll talk more about this when we talk about physician burnout and why that's happening. Yeah. But it it's not easy to to parcel off your job as a physician because being a physician means having to stay pretty up to date. If you want to be good at what you're doing and want to feel safe with yeah. what you're doing, you need to keep being engaged with all the changes in medicine. And, and it's a tiring job, right? So it's yeah. you're exhausted all the time. You have to be in pretty good shape physically. So it, it's impressive when people are able to last so long. But anyways, what we're saying, what I'm saying is people shouldn't be obligated to work forever. And maybe people shouldn't really feel that, you know, their life trajectory is going to involve this indefinite amount of work going into this indefinite age yeah. but we did sort of expect the system was expecting people to do that for a long time and when people suddenly start jumping ship during covid no one can fault them for it but it leaves the system in trouble yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think a lot of people feel like they need to keep working just because financially they are in you know it's a bit it would be a big change in their in their lifestyle to to mm -hmm. leave their job at a certain a certain point yeah, that's true. So the financial part of it. But we're talking first about people retiring because of COVID and because of age. Yeah. So that there's this large cohort of people who've retired, and that's contributing to the immediate problem. Most people can kind of understand that. There's a couple other reasons why we're having a shortage that are not related just to that. Yeah, well, I mean, just I guess the, the last thing I'll say with this whole retirement aspect of things is you also have to remember just that we had a, a larger population uh, of at least people born at a, during a certain time period, right? Your, your baby boomers, 
uh, or maybe it's the kids of the boomers, whatever. Yeah, the boomer generation. Uh, well, fewer people were born per person after that in this country. And so when those people retire, unless you've trained up more, a, an equal number of people for the people retiring, well, then you're going to have a shortage. <laughs> that argument makes no sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> it, because, because the number of doctors is a number that's controlled by the government. It's not determined based on how many people are being born, right? Right. So we, we need to explain this to people, how how a person becomes a physician. This isn't, this is, there's actually some number calculation going on. Yeah. Right. So each year, a certain number of people in Ontario apply to medical school yeah. for a very limited number of spots. Yeah. Right. There's a couple thousand spots available each year. And that number has slowly gone up over the years. Yeah. Right. But basically what happens is when you train a physician and they graduate medical school, that person is now slotted in for 30 plus years of work. Yeah. You know, roughly. Right. So and then Ontario has a certain population of people. Therefore, it requires a certain number of doctors. But that population of people is very difficult to project. Right. Way, way in advance. Yeah. Right. Due to things like immigration, emigration, um, aging of the population. There's so many factors that work to determine how many people are actually living in Ontario in 2023. Yeah. It's hard to know in 1983 when they were graduating this cohort of doctors how many doctors they really needed in 2023 yeah. so in many ways the system was kind of built in this arbitrary manner where it was just kind of getting by graduating roughly enough people that they would need and it doesn't account for the fact that sometimes people graduate and don't work right or sometimes people graduate and move to the united states yeah. right and people are moving around traveling around the world so the whole thing is very fluid and difficult to pin an exact number down. But then you can end up in these scenarios where you project wrong and suddenly don't have enough doctors, which I believe is what happened in the 90s. In the 90s, there was this crunch yeah. and they started slashing spots of medical trainees around the province. That's right. Well, the, I think part of the problem is that they didn't look as a projection of how many doctors are going to need down the road. They looked and said, well, mm -hmm. how many doctors do we have right now? Like, oh, well, that's a lot of doctors we have right now. And they didn't take into account that those doctors are all going to retire or probably around the same time. And so you have right. to plan for what you're going to do, not for now, but for when those doctors are gone. Uh, I think that's what I was getting up the retirement thing. This is around the time we started entering medical school. Yes. We entered medical school when the class sizes were shrinking a bit, in yeah. fact. That's right. Yeah. In, in the, well, I think we were just, just past that part, point. So, in the 1980s, there was this perception in Ontario that we had two, that we had an excess of doctors, that we're mm -hmm. paying for all these doctors to go through the system, and there's not, we don't need that many, so why are we funding this many physicians? So they actually cut the amount of doctors that they allowed into med school. They cut the amount of trainees happening. Um, right. And then uh, in the early 90s, that's around the time when people quickly started to realize, oh my gosh, uh, uh, oh no, I'm, I'm getting that wrong. The excess was in the 80s. The restriction was in the early 90s, uh, and it was the late right. 90s when they started to right. realize, okay, wait a minute, we've made a mistake here. <laughs> now, we are having a doctor shortage. So it didn't take right. that long for them to realize uh, or to, right. for them to feel the effects of doing something stupid. Right. Uh, so I think when we were in school, like the year after us, there started to be like five more spots or 10 more spots. Like it started to creep up. That's right. And then around that time, they, they removed the retirement age for people yeah. as, and that I guess provided a temporary buffer for this problem so yeah. a lot of people kept working but now that 
field is coming paid now, and so a lot of people are retiring, and we really just don't have enough people going through the system. Yeah. And if people think it's just a simple matter of, okay, let's let more people in, it's not so easy to just let people in yeah. because you need to make sure that they're adequately trained. A lot of these schools, like our school is in a, we went to Queens University, which is like a small university in a, in a medium-sized town, you know, in Eastern Ontario. And I thought it was a medium-sized university in a small-sized town. <laughs> so, to me, it's just a small town in, a, in the middle of nowhere, right? But no matter how you slice it, but Basically, you can't increase the number of medical students by 20% or the number of residents by 20% and then still expect everyone to get the same experience of training, you know, same exposure to difficult cases and, and whatever. It's just like, you know, you need a certain volume of experience as a trainee, and they can't just open that up so easily. Yeah, well, they increased the number of medical students, uh, but they didn't proportionally increase the number of residency spots. So mm-hmm. that, was, that became a bit of an issue. Where, well, okay, you've got all these residents, but where are they going to train? Um, right. And then you're trying, to, you're trying to jam them. So there's this huge political thing that's happening is that because medicine and medical training is government funded in Ontario yeah. and in Canada, that the number of medical training spots is dictated by government funding. The number of residency spots is dictated by government funding at the end of the day. Yeah. There's limitations to all of these things. And so the number of spots and the number of people trained does not match what the society actually needs 10, 20 years down the road. That's a common enough situation. Yeah. I, I, I think most of us can understand that. Yeah, I guess that's the bottom line is that for a long period of time and presently as well, we're simply not training as many doctors as we actually need. Uh, and it seems like maybe there's been some oversight on the idea that the population is also growing in general, right? We have immigration. Mm-hmm. People are still, even if people aren't having four kids or six kids anymore, uh, people are still having more than one. <laughs> right? Well, On you average. had four kids. I, I don't know how you had four kids, but <laughs> some people have four kids. I'm trying to contribute to the to the whole workplace shortage but, issue. But it's not even that. There's something specific is, is happening to the demographic of people. So even if we kept the population the same, as a population, the average age of our population is getting older, right? So the baby boom generation is he- hitting their golden years. Yeah. And with that, their usage of the healthcare system goes up. So if we were living in a society where everyone was 30 years old, you could have a huge population with relatively straightforward medical needs. Right. But if you have a whole population that's skewed towards an older demographic, those needs suddenly multiply. So what we're probably going to see as the baby boomers hit into their 70s and 80s is huge uses of the healthcare system. But then 20, 30 years from now, a lot of geriatricians twiddling their thumbs because they don't have much to do at that point. So that's that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is we just aren't making enough doctors for the amount of people that need a doctor. Uh, So Mm -hmm. we got to make more doctors. Uh, But uh, what else? What else? Why else? Uh, This is the one I wanted to talk about because there's a lot of doctors who aren't actually working as full-time doctors, right. right? And that's an issue. Like, we go to the trouble of training them as a society. These doctors graduate, but they're not actually doing as much volume work as a doctor would have 10 years ago. That's a common enough scenario. It doesn't get talked about that much, actually. When we talk about doctor shortage, we just think there's not enough bodies. But you could flip the question around and say, well, there's actually a lot of bodies. We have a lot of soldiers here. They're just not fighting. Yeah, I guess maybe from the government, maybe from the patient perspective, maybe they would say, well, what do you mean there aren't enough doctors? Uh, maybe the doctors just aren't working enough hours, right? Are all doctors yes. working 24-7? No. Okay, well done. 
there's there's capacity there, isn't there? Right, right. So that is a thing, and then we'll talk about it a bit from the physician burnout standpoint next time. But even notwithstanding physician burnout and doctors getting really tired and fed up, in general, we are trying as a as a group, as physicians, as a group to 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 have balance in our life. Right. right? So I think when a doctor graduates in twenty. 2005 like 2005 our perception of our work-life balance is not really the same as a person graduating today in 2023 and certainly is not the same as our forefathers were in 1963 yeah. right so in the in the olden days if you were graduated as a physician at least this is the way that it's been passed on to me i don't know if it was actually true yeah but if you were a doctor graduating 1963 you were probably like a white dude and you're pretty happy with your exalted status in society. You set up your shingle right in the small town in Canada and just start seeing patients, you know, morning to night. Right. And then when you were done, you'd go home. But if anyone called you, you'd take out your little doctor handbag and go to their house and see them again. Right. And you would do this on the weekend. You do this all the time and you'd be slogging away. You'd probably spend some time seeing hospital patients. You might do some operations on the side like you were a jack of all trades. You did everything. Yeah. Right. Everything except spend time with your kids. Yeah. You were on call for Canada, but it was okay. You weren't expected to spend time with your kids. Right. Right. You weren't expected to spend time with your wife. You were just married to the job. Right. And the bottle. Right. So (laughs) that was that was the old school mentality of what happened. Right. And by the time we get into the system, there's this whole idea that, look, doctors are human beings. You know, we deserve to have some balance. We should be doing other things. And and when we spoke to that older generation, they would always look at us because when we started, that older generation was still around. They'd just be like, "Man, things have changed a lot. It wasn't like this back in my day." And I I, I believed it, right? Yeah. Like I believed talking to those guys that their job was different. Like they're doing house calls, they're on all the time, and and even in our generation, it was more okay to talk about balance. It was okay to talk about, you know, I'm going to go into emergency medicine because the overall volume of hours is not as demanding. Like these are conversations we had back in the day. I don't think these were conversations people had back in the 1980s or seventies. Probably not. And you know, I think sometimes people might be like, Oh, so then is this about, I mean, you and I are not millennials. We're too old to be millennials, but people would be like, is this about millennials and generation X being lazier? And I would say not exactly from the, I mean, maybe yes and no, but truly it's not that, because there are still baby boomers and some of those older people still kicking around now, but the whole mentality has changed across the board. So uh, even those older doctors now are not working nearly as much as the older doctors were when those doctors were young. Yeah. Right. That that generation that you saw on Mad Men, uh, that episode where there's a snowstorm and the cardiologist or the cardiac surgeon, he's putting on skis because the roads are so bad he has to (laughs) ski to work. That's not that's not a thing. People aren't doing that anymore. Those that generation is not on the board anymore. (laughs) But part of the problem is that as we sorry, let me rephrase this. I think I think that is true. That, that generation is not there. But I think in general, there is this understanding that more is not better. More can actually be dangerous, right? So it's it's in keeping with this idea that keeping a doctor up for 36 hours straight does not produce good medical results. Yeah. So there's this movement with trainees that we don't keep them up so late. We don't do these, in like we don't do calls indefinitely until they collapse, right? Yeah. In many ways, the old medical system was really, really old fashioned and you know, overly demanding on the people in it, right? And not a happy place to be. So we wanted to make it more fair. We wanted to make it better. We wanted to have better outcomes. 
And part of having better outcomes is restricting how much people are working. Yeah. Right. Getting enough sleep, like these basic concepts. Yeah. Right. So now when a family physician graduates, they teach them, look, you want to work about four days a week. You have a day to do paperwork and you carry about a thousand patients on your roster. That's it. A thousand. Right. When yeah. we graduated, like we were told fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred. We were told two thousand five hundred is insane. Yeah. Right. But now doctors are coming out and say, a thousand, twelve hundred. I'm done, and that means there's another three hundred patients that aren't getting picked up, yeah. right? And you multiply that across the board, then we have the seeds of a shortage, right? So even even if you're working, they're telling you to work in a slightly different way. They're telling you to balance things, right? And that's not wrong, but it's contributing to the shortage. Yeah, yeah, and I've certainly heard this uh, in this discussion. I've heard people come and take it as a, yeah, well, this is a this idea of complaining or blaming doctors for working less, this is really a, a gender bias issue. This is a, an anti-woman issue to, to frame it that way, to say that doctors should be taking <laughs> part time because because you know, women take time for Matt. It's like, uh, well, you know what? Before anybody tries to at all spin this as it's because women take part time, I'll put it right out there <laughs> that in 1962, paternity leave if you take a time machine go back to 1962 and say uh, in the future there's something called paternity leave they're gonna be like oh there's what i don't understand that concept <laughs> paternity what now hey right so, so this is this ex concept exists yeah. and because women are taking the time to have children and actually it's not the maternity leave part of it that's the issue it's it's the after the maternity leave right like when they train a doctor, they expect a doctor to work for 30 years or 40 years, whatever, right? Yeah. And once you have a child, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I, I'm on the woman's side in this conversation. I'm just saying even as dads, our, we think, you know, we're going to work less because we want to spend time with our family, period. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, yeah. right? And women make that choice. Men make that choice. And probably women make that choice more than men because society dictates that they're expected to. Yeah. But as a result, there's less people at the office every day to see patients and then it feeds into this shortage issue again. Yeah. But I certainly wouldn't want people to have this false idea of the medical system that, yeah, there's two people. There's women working part-time. And then there's these male doctors who are still working like the 60s, working like you know, <laughs> 24 hours a day. It's like, no, 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 no. The male doctors are also not working the, as much. The, the male doctors are, the male doctors like us, medical dad parents, yeah. we're riding the coattails of the females who have shown us the way of a healthier lifestyle. So we're going down that road too, right? Because we're suddenly into parenting yeah. now. <laughs> I, was, I was reading an article about the doctor shortage from the early 1990s. Um, no, what am I saying? The article was from actually the early 2000s and it was referring mm. to events in the 1990s. And they actually said it as, you know, the doctor shortage because women doctors tend to work less. Uh, and they just said it just like that, as if like, well, that's a fact. We don't need to qualify that or explain that in any way. Uh, <laughs> nobody would write an article like that nowadays. It's right. insane. But uh, really, it isn't that women doctors just came in and said, yeah, we're, we're, we don't like to work as much or, or that we made a mistake by allowing women to, to, to be in medicine. Uh, mm. Male doctors are just as much wanting to have work-life balance now. And uh, mm. having you know. said that, having said that, there are more women physicians now than ever. Right. That's been a gradual uptick. By the time we went into medical training, the number of women was at least equal, if not more than the number of male doctors. So certainly there's been a big demographic shift in 
medicine over the last 50 years. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Our class in medical school in Kingston was the first class in the history of Kingston to have more females than males in the medical school class. Mm -hmm. I think the year before us was the first class or the second or third class to have an equal number of males and females, and ours was the first. We had a 60-40 split. Let's digress for a moment. When you first went to medical school and said, and noticed that, wait a minute, we're in the class, the first class ever with more females than males. What was your immediate reaction to that scenario? Uh, like, that's the general <laughs> ratio I like to have around me. <laughs> at least at that point in my life it was. It's like you just won the lottery, the demographic lottery. For once in our life, the lottery had been won. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, although... Um, the, uh, the assumption that uh, that the best place to meet the girls you're interested in at that stage of your life is going to be the girls in med school might be not necessarily <laughs> like the correct <laughs> assumption that one would <laughs> one would make. <laughs> yes, but that is that is a separate issue. I didn't ask you how it actually played out. I just <laughs> want to know your initial reaction at the moment you saw the statistic. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it's not quite the same thing as having a a, a 60-40 split at the beach as it is when you're in med school, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I thought my options here, my my uh, opportunities here are going to be better than they would be at a at a male sausage fest med school. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to my all guys high school experience, it was certainly an eye opening one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, I I loved I loved our class in med school, and people who went to med school with me know that I was a big fan of our class in med school on so many levels. But mm-hmm. uh, I think. This idea that, yeah, the problem here is that women are coming in and pushing these men out of med school. And now we have all these women doctors making an issue. It's so like missing the point that, yeah, men are not applying to med school as much as they used to, right? Like there's all these other jobs that uh, you can do that are better. It's missing the point because women doctors are generally better physicians than male doctors, right? <laughs> Apparently there's a, there's a, it's a stated fact there's some data out there that, or maybe it's urban legend, but but what I've learned is that women are supposed to be smarter than men. Women live longer than men, right? Like we are actually out of the two genders. We're, we're, we got the short end of the stick when we were born, apparently, right? Like if we're trying to create like, you know, the master race of physicians, they should all be females, right? <laughs> well, I, I've definitely heard that stated as a fact by female physicians. <laughs> Maybe they've drummed it in so much that I'm just repeating it verbatim as fact. I don't even know where I got this. I've been told. Just like just like that article from the 2000s, late 90s, saying <laughs> as a, as if it's a known fact to everybody. Oh, part of the problem is that there are more women physicians and they tend to work less. Just the way that was stated as an irrefutable fact in the day. Now it's just stated as fact that and women physicians are more empathetic and have been shown to develop to demonstrate more compassion. Uh, but that's that's also a fact isn't it (laughs) like just look at your mom and your dad look at my mom and my dad yeah who's more empathetic right that's a female character trait (laughs) right if you want like a gruff physician who's liable to haze the other members of his medical class (laughs) then you get a guy right (laughs) certainly i mean women seem to make better parents why would they not make better physicians (laughs) (laughs) And again, going back to our old example, look at all the wars in the world, all of them started by men, right? All that destruction, nuclear weapons, men, right? Professional hockey, professional wrestling, mostly men. Like, there you go. (laughs) The crazy part is all those wars were started because men were basically trying to oppress women. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's just the Trojan War specifically, (laughs) okay? (laughs) 
the Trojan War is uh, meant to be a mythical story with an analogy or a metaphor or parable in it for all wars. Right? All wars truly. Why do men care so much about having all the power is because on a fundamental level, they're trying to impress women. There you go. There you go. Anyways, so there you go. That's the physician shortage and why it's happening. So it's a complicated thing. There's political reasons. It's difficult for them to match the numbers. Doctors are retiring en masse because of COVID. But just in general, physicians are not working as hard as they used to be. They're not seeing as many patients. And we think that's actually for the betterment of healthcare. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to say clearly that the gender imbalance is not part of the problem at all. I guarantee 100% from what I'm seeing with the trainees coming through medicine right now, replace mm. all the female physicians with male ones, you're not going to see a boost in, uh, in productivity. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that is definitely the case. Yeah. Um, and there's one thing that we didn't talk about that I'll just throw in there is uh, the data showing that physicians are spending less or are seeing less patients per hour. Like mm. whether we're on the job, we're not seeing as many patients as we used to. Hmm. Yeah. Now, here's a here's a subtopic. We spent a few minutes on this one. Less and less people want to go into family medicine. This is a this is a relatively new thing that I've been hearing, but it's starting to gain momentum. And family medicine is, you know, the thing that people talk about when they say we don't have a physician. Most of the time, they're referring to the fact that they don't have a family doctor. They can't get access to a family doctor. And suddenly, in Canada, we're seeing less and less people interested in family medicine. Less and less people applying to do it as a career. And that's another wrench that's been thrown into this problem. I don't even know if that's exactly true, that there's less interest in family medicine or less people applying to do family medicine uh, because we invented family medicine. What, we, what is true <laughs> is that there are fewer primary care providers or fewer general practitioners. And that is definitely true because we eliminated all, the, all these general practitioners by no longer making that a mandatory part of becoming a physician. Right. It used well, to be that yeah. everybody was qualified to do that. Right. Right. Now you have to do separate training. So what Stu is referring to is originally when you finished medical school in the in the 70s, early 80s, what would happen is when you graduate from medical school, everyone would go and do a one year internship where you'd rotate through various parts of the hospital. So you would do some obsgyne. You deliver some babies, you do some internal medicine, you do some emergency room shifts. At the end of that year, you've kind of seen a bit of everything. You could just say, you know what, I'm done. I want to start working and go set up your shingle as a general practitioner, which would be the equivalent of a family doctor today. Yeah. Or you could say, you know what, I want to, spe I want to specialize in something. Yeah. So then you'd go off and become a pediatrician or you do more training to become an anesthetist or a surgeon. So everyone that finished medical school could, at some point in their career, go back and use this general practitioner license and just do family medicine. Yeah. At some point, the people who, the powers that be that rule family medicine said, you know what? No, no, no. We want to make this a little bit more selective. Yeah. So they turned family medicine into a two-year specialty program. So at that point, I think this happens in the early 90s. I Correct me if I'm wrong. Late 80s, early 90s. And suddenly everyone that finishes medical school at that point has to apply. So you either go into family medicine, which is a two-year program, or you go into a specialty. And the two things don't mix anymore. So yeah. you can't finish like Stu. You can't finish as an emergency room, you know, pediatrician and then say, I'm going to be a family doctor 10 years from now, yeah. right? You just can't do that. Whereas in the past you could have done that. Yeah. And so the, they made the family medicine training longer. Presumably that makes people better at it. Maybe, maybe not, probably not. 
And now we have a system where it's a little bit harder to become a family doctor, right? Because before the advantage was, well, I don't have to do much more training. I'm done. I can start earning. Yeah. Now we're putting people through a two-year training program. And lately, there's even talk of stretching this into a three-year training program to make it even more Ridiculous. appealing for people who are sitting on the fence. Because in other countries, like the United States, the family medicine training has always been three years long. Yeah. So, so that's been going on. But what I was referring to is that actually in the last couple years, the number of applicants from the medical schools applying for family medicine as a specialty has dropped. And that number has dropped steadily for a couple of years. So it's been raising alarm bells within the family medicine teaching community of why that's happening. Why is this not an appealing job for people? Yeah. And there's no real super clear answer. What they, what they And coupled that with the fact that a lot of these family doctors that finished their residency say, I don't really want to work as a regular family doctor. I want to do another year of... So in family medicine training, there's these, we call it two plus one. So you finish your two years of family medicine, yeah. then you can do another year in anesthesia or another year as emerge, another year in palliative care, and suddenly you have this subspecialty uh, training that then you can go and work within that subspecialty. So you don't have to see regular run-of-the-mill primary care yeah. five days a week. And a lot of people are running with that. So all of these things are adding up, making it less and less traditional office-based bread-and-butter family medicine doctors, they are actually becoming a bit more scarce. That's what I do for a living. And my resident came up to me and was like, you guys are a dying breed. It's hard to find people who just do this. I'm like, oh, man, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be in a dying breed, but okay, fine. <laughs> it is, uh, it's true. When we were in med school, we recognized and our class had sort of fed back, back to the school that our training experience didn't do much to really sell us on the idea of family medicine by giving us really good exposure to family medicine working well. Uh, we didn't get a lot of family me medicine incorporated into our lectures. You just had a few rotations where you'd work with a family doctor. Mm. Um, and the whole process of applying to a specialty kind of made family doctors seem like you were, you were taking an easy route or you're doing something less by going to family medicine. You, you apply for what you want to do pediatrics, emergency medicine, whatever, and then you back up with family. If I don't get what I want, then I go into family. Uh, that, that was the case when we went. Yeah. That's not so much the case now. That's right. People... What's happened now is a lot of work's been done to try to change that. But now what's happening is people are actually hearing from family doctors saying, my job, I regret it. I wish I had done something else. <laughs> I'm not happy working as a family doctor under the conditions that I'm working in right now. And that mm. is causing people to say, oh, well, then I'm definitely... Before, I was uninformed about family medicine, so I didn't choose it because I didn't realize how good it could be. Now people are, I'm informed about family medicine, and I hear it's terrible. I don't want to do it. <laughs> That's a perfect segue into our next episode when we're going to talk about the physician shortage from the standpoint of physician burnout, and specifically family doctor burnout, especially Dr. Shu's version of family doctor yeah. burnout. That's good. We'll leave that for next time, and we'll put in there, because I, I just threw out there that line that... Physicians see less patients per hour than they used to. I think that, mm -hmm. that the explanation as to why, we'll, we'll cover that in our burnout talk. Yes, yes. So there you go. Those are some of the reasons. I think we've covered most of the big reasons why the shortage is happening. Yeah. And it's multifaceted. There's a lot of things. And none of these things are easy to solve. Very but don't true. worry. Stick around. At some point, we will give people the solution to this problem, maybe. <laughs> Speaking of problems that need solutions, wasn't there one more thing we were going to talk about if we had time? Yes. Every, every episode, we're going to break it into the heavy side of medical dad life and the light side. And we're going to talk a little bit about the heavy side now, <laughs> which it. is the, the inability of dads to watch a movie properly. 
yeah. once you've become a parent. To watch anything properly. Dr. Shu is saying to me, hey, have you watched uh, Andor? And my answer, yeah, you know, I started the first three episodes. It seemed all right, but I haven't had a chance <laughs> to keep going. And that was months ago. Uh, right. t- today, Dr. Shu, did you finish Andor? How, how was it? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm three episodes <laughs> in. I haven't had time to. It's, Stu, it's really hard for us to do a, re- a show where we review content <laughs> yeah. and shows and books when we don't have time to read or watch anything. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't know. Did we even mention this on the podcast last last time we recorded that that you were going to endeavor to watch the movie Heat, which is like a three, <laughs> four hour movie. So so I, I think I think actually last year when we did the episode on the Batman, I had told a story about how difficult it was for me to watch the movie, but it didn't make the cut because because for whatever reason, the episode was very, very long. I don't know why our Batman episode would be so long, but we didn't tell that story. But basically, it's just really hard to find time to sit down to watch a movie, never mind a long movie, right? And so Heat, for people who don't know, this is a movie from the mid-90s. A lot of dudes, and I'm just going to say it's a guy movie, really, but a lot of guys think this is like the greatest movie ever made. It stars Al Pacino and Robert De Niro as like a master thief and a master cop, and they're trying to like catch each other. And it's got maybe the greatest bank robbery scene in the history of movies. And this is a movie that I actually saw in the 90s and didn't really appreciate. But recently I was listening to some podcasts and these podcasts are really hyping this thing up. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this movie another crack. I really just want to watch this again. And it's two hours and 45 minutes long. So I started watching it and I realized I was telling my wife at the end, I'm like, I think it was a really good movie, but it's really hard to appreciate. Like it's, it's bad enough that I'm not watching the movie in its original form, which is like, you know, in a movie theater with massive surround sound. I at least force myself to watch it on a television, yeah. right? Because now in the modern age of dads watching movies, we're often watching movies on our phone, <laughs> right? I'm watching on a three-inch screen, right? And yeah, those special effects don't look so good. But I'm watching it on a TV, but because of the vagaries of parenting life and the kids had, like, piano and I had work and, you know, you're charting. I'm trying to, like, edit medical dads. I'm watching the movie in these, like, parceled-out 30-minute, 20-minute, 40-minute chunks of time, yeah. right? And I'm pretty sure that's not what the director had in mind when he made the thing, right? <laughs> he wasn't intending for me to have to, like, watch the movie in these chunks. And I just feel like it's really difficult to tell if something is good or not good or really, or not even so much that, evaluating it, but just ch- really hard to enjoy it in its fullest yeah. when you're watching something like that. Have you ever had that experience? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, this is the there's there's several obstacles, right, to to settling down to watch what you want to watch when you're a dad. So, I mean, first there's just the time constraints of whatever job you have, and everybody listening to this podcast probably has some job or the other uh, that you know they can't just watch movies all day. But then right. when you do have that time where it's after after work, well, there's all the things of just you know I have to manage family and all that and all that, right? And then mm-hmm. then when you get to the point where it's like, okay, well. Now it's some quiet time, so I could watch a movie with the family or, or the kids are better going to watch a movie. Well, you can't just choose the movies you want to watch, right? You're not going <laughs> to settle down to watch Heat, right, with your with your <laughs> five-year-old or your six-year-old, right? There's lots of killing. Or, or, your, or your wife, evidently. <laughs> That's right. Even after the kids go to bed, if you ask most dads, like, what have you watched lately? Uh, what they're going to watch is going to be something that can be watched <laughs> by a, a husband and a wife together. And right. So how much you've seen some of these type of more dad-esque shows depends on how much of a nerd your wife is. Right? So if you, if you can get your wife into into RoboCop, then great, you're golden. But 
<laughs> not every wife's gonna want to sit down with that. It's fun to watch stuff like Knocked Up. You know, we watched that the other week. Yeah. But sometimes you just want to watch Heat. But you, you know, your wife doesn't want to watch a bank robbery. Not even the greatest bank robbery ever filmed. Right. That's right. So don't, you're gonna be on your own. So you're gonna have to find a way to watch this on your own. And your wife also wants to watch some TV. You know. You, it's it's not great for marriages for people to be watching on separate TVs in separate rooms. That's right. Right. So it creates all these weird issues that you got to deal with as a dad. Yeah, I, I I have sort of a policy that when my wife goes to bed, I go to bed. I don't I don't think it's good for a marriage to get, fall into the habit of like, oh, okay, my wife's gone upstairs, she's gone to bed, so I'm down here watching, you know, <laughs> John Wick or something like that. Right. Right. But, uh, but then that does mean that you know. You're not going to have that, that. Well, what it means is that now you're waiting to hear your wife start gently snoring. And then you're reaching into your drawer to pull out some headphones. <laughs> and now you're trying to watch something on your phone. Uh, but you've only got a certain amount of time before now you need to fall asleep. Otherwise, you're going to be exhausted <laughs> for work the next day. Okay, we're not advocating that. Just from a pure like movie enjoyment viewpoint, yeah. the idea that you can download content onto your phone just because you can do that does not make it right. Right, like watching stuff on your phone is like a horrible experience. But this is this is how dads are seeing movies, or is this how dads are watching content? Yeah, like, uh, like you hold up your phone like really close to your face, and then you pretend that you're in a movie theater. You kind of say to yourself, <laughs> within my field of vision, the screen is as big as if it was when I'm in the Cineplex Odeon. Like you're just fooling yourself, Dad. It's not the same, right? You can hold, push those headphones as tight as you want into your eardrums. It's not IMAX, okay? That's why what uh, what Dave does at his house is that once his wife gently falls asleep, he pulls open his bottom drawer and he pulls out a 42-inch flat teen screen TV and he puts it on his lap. <laughs> and then he pulls out some popcorn and he has to chew really quietly so he doesn't wake up his wife. It, it, it is terrible to try to watch movies as a dad. I have this whole thing where like, you know, I was, we were talking about retirement today. When I retire, there's going to be this sequence where I sit down and just start watching all these old movies that I've missed and all these old basketball seasons that I've missed, yeah. right? So I'm looking forward to that. So dudes, if you're thinking about working forever, don't. Have a retirement plan in place. And then, of course, there's always HBO. They've, they've got your back, right? Because HBO, <laughs> they sit around, they're like, okay, okay, we got to make a show that dads can watch, but they have to be able to watch it with their wives. So... Let's see. First of all, let's take a soap opera, add in a bunch, a bunch of drama. Okay, there we go. They, we got the wives covered. Uh, now for the dads, let's throw in, uh, uh, you know, some dragons, uh, some fantasy elements, some swords, some some battles, some some gore, uh, and we're gonna throw in a ton of gratuitous sex that uh, you know people are gonna pretend it's for the dads, but the wives <laughs> like it too. They just don't want to admit it. And there we go. That's the show. So not every but not every guy's been as lucky as others to have their their wife like Game of Thrones. But that's a show. That's a show my wife is watching. Maybe watch that's all a show. See, see, there we go. Just like we're saying, it's so hard for us to watch TV. Doctor Harmon is quoting a show that ended like five years ago as his <laughs> thing that doctors should be watching. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been watching uh, Shit's Creek. If you've uh, if you ever heard of this show. Uh, that show has also ended. In fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stay uh, tuned next week when we break down what was popular back in 2018. That's right. <laughs> Anyways, back to Heat. It is an awesome movie. People should watch it in its entirety. I will try to watch it in its entirety at some point, but maybe when my children are older and I have more than like 45 minutes to spare in a block of time. You mean you haven't watched it? 
I finished. I finished. Oh, in pieces. But you mean you're going to sit and watch it yeah. all in one go? One of these days. I'll yeah. sit and watch it, but not, not today. There's a lot on my to-do list. And now people understand why doctors are retiring earlier than ever before. <laughs> because of heat. <laughs> <laughs> See you in a week, folks. See ya.